Hello, I'm Kyle Corbwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're going to be answering your questions. It was back in December, I think it was episode six, when we last did this. So again, thank you for sending them in, and please keep your questions coming on email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. Alice Guy, personal finance editor at Interactive Investor, is in the studio with me to help tackle them. So the first one comes from Vanessa, who asks, should I overpay my mortgage or my pension? I'll pass the baton over to you, Alice, for this first one. What do you think? Well, I think this is super interesting. It's actually something I've been wondering myself because, um, as you know, I've had a career break, so my, my pension's down and I've got a big mortgage as well. So I'd kind of crunch some numbers on this, actually. And um, basically, if you've got a pension you're paying into already and a mortgage that you're paying in, um, it really, really depends on interest rates and investment performance. So basically, if they're similar, then there's the not really not that much in it. You kind of roughly equal the same way. Um, so I'm kind of assuming you'll um, pay extra into your mortgage and then once it's paid off, you'll, pay, you'll divert those, the amount you were paying into your um, mortgage into your pension. Um, so there's not much in it. But if you think investment growth will outperform, then you're going to be better off putting into your pension and vice versa. Yeah, because that's the key question really, isn't it? Is whether the money you would save on interest from overpaying a mortgage beats the returns possible by increasing pension contributions. Exactly, and yeah. your analysis, it, it showed, didn't it, that if investment growth is higher than interest rates, then you're better off paying into your pension first, overpaying on it, because you know, you've got a long time for those investments to grow and benefit from compounding, etc. But if the mortgage interest rate is higher than the potential investment growth that you're going to generate, then probably better paying down your mortgage first. Yeah, definitely. The only thing to bear in mind with that is think about tax relief because the big benefit to paying into your pension is tax relief. So if you think I'm probably going to kind of go part time later on or maybe retire early, then you might not benefit from that tax relief later on if you pay into your pension later. So that's just something that could make a difference. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's, it, it does depend on your personal circumstances and obviously I think a big factor in that is, is age as well, you know, but I think, you know, if you're 20 years away from retirement and your mortgage has 20 years left, then I, I do think it's a, it's a difficult decision, which, yeah, which, which one to do. Um, I think for me personally, if I received a windfall, which I'm not expecting, unless this couple of hundred pounds that uh, my granddad gave me in um, mm. premium bonds over you know, 20, 25 years ago, unless, unless I'm lucky and I, and I win the big jackpot on that, I think I would probably be more inclined to um, get a step closer to free myself from mortgage debt. You know, I, I'm hoping that I can pay off my mortgage. Well, we can pay off our mortgage by the time I'm in my early 50s. Mm. And then I think once, once you know, you're free of that debt, you've then got 15 years to use you know, extra disposable income to put into your pension, give it a, you know, give it as much as a boost as you can for that last 15 years. I think I'd probably just prefer the sort of peace of mind yeah, of yeah. getting rid of the, the biggest debt that you're probably going to have in your life. Yeah, for me, I think I'm prioritising my pension first because I had the career break, so I'm very aware that 
I want to sort of try and build that pot up. But yeah, at the moment, our mortgage isn't going to be paid off for ages. So it is really tricky to know which to prioritise. So the next question is related to junior SIPs. So this comes from um, Stuart. So in the last question and answer uh, episode that we did back in December, you know, we were talking about um, how to save and invest for children and, and grandchildren. And Stuart got in touch to uh, point out and we didn't mention junior SIPs, which is a fair comment. You can't, you know, it's a, you know, it's a great way you know, to save and invest for a child or a grandchild. Obviously that pot of money, you know, the, the child is not going to access it until they're, you know, 57. It's mm. probably going to be a lot higher a lot than higher. that. higher, yeah, um, the way right? it's going. Yeah, I probably, <laughs> you know, it's it's probably more likely going to, I mean, I'm just speculating, but I mean, I, I, I guess it's probably going to be 60 plus um, at that point. Yeah, they're actually tying in when you can draw your private pension to the state pension. So it's, it's going to be pulled up as the state pension age rises. It's usually about 10 years difference. It's coming in actually, the rules are slightly changing, but yeah, there's going to be a 10 year difference. So I think it's very likely that will go up to about 60. And of course, you know, if you're investing in a, a junior SIP, then I think the child can have access to it when they're 18, but obviously they can't withdraw the money no. until, you know, well, 57 at the moment, probably, you know, older than that by the time they get to it. So, and as the as the uh, listener pointed out, that um, obviously with the um, as and as we talked about in the last uh, in that podcast episode, with a stocks and shares junior ISA, um, and indeed a cash junior ISA as well, when the child is 18, they can access the money and they could withdraw it all at once. And um, I did make the flipping comment that you know my kids, you know, they could potentially just go to Ibiza <laughs> with the uh, with, with the pot of money. Um, but I think for, for me, I think, you know, it's not an either or choice. You yeah. can you can have a junior SIP and also a junior ISA. But I think for me, if I had to pick between the two, I think I'd like to see them sort of benefit from the pot of money mm. while I'm still alive. Yeah. I don't mean sound morbid, but like, you know, when, when they get to 57, 58, I mightn't be here. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I'd sooner actually see them use the money and potentially and hopefully go towards something like a house deposit. Yeah, definitely. What, what, what are your four talents? I mean, you've, yeah. got, you've got four children I've yourself. I've got four children, so it's going to be a struggle helping them all out, to be honest. But I think um, I'm with you on that. I mean, the, the amazing thing about investing for a long period is you do get that investment compounding, which can really, really snowball over time. But I think, you know, house prices are so unaffordable now, aren't they? And I think being able to help them out, get that first step on the ladder potentially, or, you know, just give them a bit extra towards a deposit could actually, if you think of like the amount that they might spend on rent, if they can just get that house a tiny bit earlier or you can help them out to be able to get a first car for a job or, you know, any number of things they might need. It is really tricky as well looking way into, into the future to know what the situation will be, isn't it? It is, yeah. We've had another question, which is um, sort of a, well, it's basically ISIS versus SIP. Yeah which is the best tax efficient wrapper. Of course, you can invest in, you know, you can have both accounts. I suppose, you know, we should answer the question because it is an either or question. So what do you, what do you think, Alice? If that is the question that's come in. Um, the name wasn't left, okay. unfortunately. So, um, I mean, when you, when you do post a question, if you can leave your name, that would be great. Just to um, give listeners the email address. Again, it's um, otm at ii.co.uk. 
So what are your four tell us? What, what do you think is the best tax efficient wrapper? Well, obviously they both have similarities because they're both going to protect your investment growth from capital gains tax and from dividend income tax, uh, which is really important at the moment because both of those allowances are being slashed. So um, they're both similar in that. Now, when you've got three points basically at which you potentially get taxed or possibly four, but you've got when you pay your money in, when you have your investment growth and then when you draw your money out. Now, the, the investment growth thing is pretty much the same. Um, the benefit to pensions is that you get that tax boost from the tax relief when you pay in, but then you pay tax when you draw that income out later on. ISAs, you sort of pay in from your net income, so you just there's no tax benefit to paying in, but you don't pay tax when you draw them out. So there's kind of pros and cons to both. I suppose pensions win slightly because you get that tax relief up front. So the compounding means that that potentially grows more as well. I guess the other big difference is in terms of flexibility, but like you were saying before, your SIP, you can only draw it once you get to 55 at the moment, going up to 57, then going up to 58. So in terms of flexibility, that's where there's quite a big difference because I'd say ISA wins on that one because you can basically draw out from the ISA at any point you need it. You just have to make sure that you're not investing more than the £20,000 allowance each year. Whereas with a pension, you're restricted to getting to that minimum um, pension age when you can start drawing that pension income. Yeah, I completely agree. As you mentioned, I think you know if, you, if it's for retirement, the SIPs are all, almost always better than ISAs because of that tax relief that you're getting exactly, be yeah. benefiting from compounds and but with ISAs I think if you're saving towards a specific goal in life such as you know a house deposit or a wedding or you know school fees then obviously they're a lot more flexible so you can take money out of the ISA. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that at retirement you may end up in a lower tax band compared to your working life mm. so um, mm. so you could be a higher rate taxpayer, you know, while you're working, when you're putting money into the SIP, and then you're benefiting from, you know, 40% or, you know, even 45% uplift from the government for additional rate taxpayers. And then at retirement, you could be a basic rate taxpayer. Yeah. And then you're only yeah, paying 20% yeah. income tax when you're taking money out of the SIP. The other thing that's quite nice about SIPs is that actually they pass outside of inheritance tax. So this is only going to apply to some people that have enough to you know keep them going but if you do have pension a pension pot left um, you can pass that on completely free of inheritance tax yeah that's a that's a really good point and um you know as mentioned at the beginning of the answer it's not an either or decision mm. you, you, a lot of people have both and they both you know they've had they have they have both have a lot more pros but there's, there are some cons also to uh, to be aware of which we've both hopefully uh, covered there now the next question we're going to move on to is from derek the, the essence of the question is, how do I decide whether to sell, hold, or buy more of an underperforming mm. fund? Yeah, so, um, yeah, this is a, it's a big question. And, you know, I could, spend a, I could spend a whole episode trying to answer it. But I think, you know, the key ultimately is, is to try and step back and understand why the fund is underperforming. It could be because the, the region that the fund is investing in or its investment style, such as, you know, if it's got a value focus or a growth focus that's out of favour. I think, I think if that's the reason why it's underperforming, then you can perhaps forgive the underperformance because there's a clear headwind there. 
but if there's no sort of notable headwinds, if it you know it could you know it simply could be down to the fact that you know poor stock picking or you know poor stock selections, then you you may have less patience. And of course, I think you know if if a fund is underperforming, I think it's important to ultimately make a decision either way rather than you know bury your head in the sand. I think if, you know if, if if the fund's underperforming and you think actually now it's even better value than it was when I originally bought it, then you, you may take the view that actually now's the time to actually try and buy low and um, top up your holding yeah. in, in that fund. And I think if you know if you're buying a a fund or an investment trust that is underperforming, I think I think it's you know it, it's more prudent to you know to you know top up regularly you know to benefit from pound cost averaging. But I mean it's it, it you know it's a it's a difficult decision, and I think you know if you particularly if you buy a fund or an investment trust that gets off to a bad start because percentage losses require bigger percentage gains yeah. to get back to even. So you know if you know if you if you buy a fund and it falls twenty percent. It doesn't require twenty percent to get back to even. It actually requires twenty five percent. And similarly, you know, if it, if it's you know if a fund is down fifty percent, which is quite extreme, you'd be surprised to see a fund fall fifty percent. But I mean, some of them did last year, mm-hmm. um, and some of the investment trusts. Then you need a gain of a hundred percent just to get back to even. So I think ultimately, it's you know it might be the answer that you want, but it's ultimately only a decision that people can make themselves. But um, my my preference would be that. I think it's important to make a decision either way, either you know, either cut your losses or buy more. Yeah, I think as well, it's sort of it's where you sort of have to put your unemotional hat on and say, I need to look at it at this point, not be too governed by, you know, the fact I've maybe got attached to that fund or decisions I made in the past, but sort of think like, I've got this fund, what am I gonna make that decision going forward? And um, that hopefully makes it a bit easier to make that decision. Yeah, and I think as well, yeah, you need to remember why you bought the fund in the first place and whether it's still fulfilling the role in your portfolio that you you wanted it to fulfill. For example, if you're buying it because it had a it was offering a high level of income and then that high level of income is now no longer being delivered, then arguably you should then call it a day because you know, it's like buying anything if it's if it's not living or meeting up to your expectations as in other walks of life. I think the time is then to to move on and uh, look at opportunities elsewhere. We had a separate question come in, which was specifically related uh, to Lowland Investment Trust from Lawrence. Lawrence pointed out that Lowland Investment Trust is going through a um, bit of a rough patch of performance, and yeah, that is indeed the case. Over the past year, it's the third worst performer in the UK equity income trust sector out of twenty two trusts. It's down six and a half percent. And also over five years, it's second to bottom. So it's returned 4.3% versus uh, just over 30% for the average UK equity income trust. So this investment trust is managed by um, James Henderson and Laura Foll. They're two fund managers that I've interviewed you know, a couple of times over the years. And it adopts a, a multi-cap approach. So it invests across the market in terms of size, but it does have a bias towards smaller companies. And certainly over the past year, that's been a headwind. Um, smaller company shares, they've been out of favour due to concerns about the economy. You know, these companies, they have more of, a, more of their um, revenues are generated in the UK. When investors are cautious on the economy, this part of the market tends to be um, sold off. 
and obviously there's there's fears over you know a recession as well, which um, a lot of fund managers point out as priced uh, priced in a recession into the smaller company part of the market. Mm-hmm. And I also noticed in its top ten holdings for December, it has Direct Line, which unexpectedly cut its dividends last month in January. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Despite there was those previous assurances that the dividend was secure. I think that you know that always annoys investors and fund managers when a, a company says that the dividend is safe and then they uh, quite quickly reverse that decision. And um, recently, the chief executive also departed from Direct Line. Is it on a discount? Yeah, so I mean, that's the thing. So the, the discount is 12% and it's now on a dividend yield of 4.9%. So both those, the discount and the yield, you know, investors buying today might might find that attractive. But as I, as I mentioned in the previous answer, it's a case of stepping back and trying to understand why it's underperformed. I think you can, it has had the headwind of, you know, it, having that bias to smaller companies. So I think that's, obviously that's not held performance over the past year. And it also invests in market leading businesses that are out of favour. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, some of the companies that are investing in, that, you know, they've been caught up in that sort of smaller company sell-off in that part of the market. I, th- I think there's a clear reason why it's underperformed. I think going forward, again, you have to ultimately take a view, compare it against other funds that you know invest in a similar manner, have a look at the other multi-cap income strategies, and also have a look at income funds that have a bias to smaller companies and see whether you know its performance is out of kilter or not, and then take a view going forward. In regards to the two fund managers, James Henderson and Laura Fall, that, you know they are very well respected yeah. within the fund management industry. And they also run other funds and investment trusts as well. The final two questions, I'm going to um, heavily rely on you here, Alice, because um, <laughs> these are not in my area of competence, to be totally honest. So the first one, it was from a question from uh, David. It was very sort of specific towards yeah, yeah. inheritance tax. Now, obviously, we can't give financial advice, so I can't specifically go into the, you know all, all the stuff that was mentioned within the question about how that related to his personal circumstances. So I, th- I thought what would be best instead, which is what we can do, is offer some sort of inheritance tax tips and tricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to give a basic overview because the first thing is to say that inheritance tax has got so many different rules and exceptions. So you really do need to get um, legal advice on your particular circumstances. So um, most people, if you're married and you've got a house, you own a house and you're leaving it to your descendants, to your children, your grandchildren, most people effectively get a million pounds before they have to pay inheritance tax. Because the way it works is each person gets a nil rate band of 325,000. So you can double that up if you're a married couple. So that's a sort of 650. And then if, you, if you're a homeowner, it's a bit unfair on people who rent, but if you're a homeowner, you can pass on, you get an extra 175,000 residents nil rate band on top, and that also doubles up. So that's another 350, yeah. So it adds up to a million pounds, but you have to make sure your will's done in the right way. There are ways you can sort of end up missing out on those reliefs and exemptions, depending how it's drafted. So if you think you're going to have to pay inheritance tax, I'd say definitely get legal advice. Now, the main sort of two ways you can avoid inheritance tax or reduce your bill is giving away assets in lifetime. And then, as I say, making sure that you're taking advantage of reliefs and exemptions in your will. So you can give away £3,000 a year 
Um, each person could give away 3,000 and that will be immediately out of your estate for inheritance tax. If you give away other gifts you, and then you die within seven years, they might end up being pulled into your estate in terms of your inheritance tax bill. So that's the basic way it works. The other thing to sort of think about when you're giving away gifts is you can actually end up triggering a capital gain. So if you sell an asset, you obviously might get a gain, depending what sort of asset it is. But you can also potentially trigger a gain when you give a gift. So you could end up potentially giving assets, say, to your children and then and thinking, good, I'm going to save inheritance tax, but you're going to potentially end up with a capital gains tax bill. So that's where it's important just to kind of really make sure you understand all the rules. Just another thing to watch out for is that if you're sort of giving away assets um, just to save on something like care home fees, there's a real trap there because the council will look at what you've given away and say, well, you can't just give away assets to avoid care home fees um, because that, that's called sort of deprivation of assets. So if you're giving away assets to, for inheritance tax reasons or something like that, that would be different. But that's where, again, it's important to get advice and make sure that you're not accidentally triggering another charge. Well, there's plenty of uh, food for thought there. Yeah, as, um, <laughs> as I say, it's complicated. I know that you've written an article on, uh, on gifting yeah. uh, previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what we'll do is we'll put it in the description to this episode, which, you know, to, to look for further information, um, you, can, you can go there by clicking on that link. And the final question, I think it was triggered from um, a recent article that you wrote, mm. Alice. It came in from Mary, who asked, um, with the state pension, yeah. is buying backdated contributions a good deal or not? Well, it can be a great deal, but it very much depends. So the way the state pension works, it's based on your national insurance contributions. If you've, if you've got the new state pension, and that's for people who've retired after 2016, uh, you need 35 years of national insurance contributions to get the full amount. If you've got missing contributions, and those missing contributions are within the last six years, you can go back and buy extra. But at the moment, there's an extra special deal. So just up till the end of the tax year, you can actually backdate contributions 16 years. It might not be worth doing if you've got 35 years already. So you have to kind of check and you can look online actually, there's a really good sort of government um, tool where you can check your contributions and you'll be able to see if you've got missing years. But yes, it is a good deal because it basically costs £824 to buy an extra year and that will give you an extra state pension of £275 a year. So if you do the maths, basically you only have to survive for four years to recoup that money. So it's like way better deal than you would get kind of on an annuity or something like that. So yeah, it can be a really, really good deal. And it's definitely worth just checking at the moment before that sort of been able to backdate 16 years runs out. So you can buy 16 years and, we, and you know, if you live for longer than four years, you're in the money essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So, but obviously, again, only buy them if you haven't got enough. And, and if you're sort of middle aged and you think, um, I haven't got enough, but you're still working, you probably will by the time you retire. So yeah, it's just very much dependent on circumstances. So I think like with anything to do with tax, it's really important to get independent financial advice because it's really, there are so many fiddly rules and it really does depend on your circumstances, the right thing for you. Well, thank you for uh, joining me today, Alice. And thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. And if you get a chance, leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. 
You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you want us to talk about via email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.